<coughs> so tonight is, I told you this before, tonight's part one of kind of a two-part series. I'm talking about the essential nature of man, talking about man as body and spirit. Uh, we're talking about sin. Uh, and then that's going to lead up to next week we're going to go over atonement. And we've got a, a guest teacher coming in, a local pastor, Colin Kerr from a, a downtown church. So he's going to pick up kind of where I leave off. <clears throat> um, I want to start off by talking about, so e each talk that I give, it's got like a story behind it and what God's teaching me and what I'm learning. So I came across a documentary recently that had a big impact on me. And the documentary uh, was about near-death experiences and people who claim to have been dead, gone through extreme circumstances, then came back, report on what they felt, saw, talked to people, experienced. It's really interesting. So it prompted me to, to look at what literature is out there on it from as much as you can an objective perspective, right? You know, something like that that's so miraculous it, and it's very subjective, their personal experience. <clears throat> Trying to get into it from, uh, again, from a more objective standpoint. So some of the similarities that are reported in near-death experiences. So one, a lot of people report an out-of-body experience. So they can see themselves from outside their body, inside the room, or above their body and they can tell what's going on around them. So that's, that's number two, is that uh, often the sense of time and place is drastically changed or manipulated. So time either, either slows down, there's no sense of time. In the moment people report they could observe something too that wasn't immediately with them. So they could see stuff going on in the room but also outside of that where they, their body wasn't and this is another, the third commonality amongst near-death experiences. People report they could see or even talk with deceased relatives or religious figures. So I want to give one specific example and, and how it had an impact on me. So there's, and this is, you know, I work in genetics, but it's primarily around pregnancies and obstetrics. So there was a story where a woman goes into labor and she has serious complications. So they take her immediately to the OR and uh, they start to do a cesarean section. So when you're in the OR doing a C-section, right, you're wired up. They're following your, your uh, you know, blood pressure, you're, you're monitoring your heart, your blood oxygen levels, you know, she's all wired up. So they're going through the C-section, there's a complication, she flatlines. So there's no heartbeat, no brain activity, like she's gone. So uh, one of the nurse jumps on top of her, starts doing CPR, because again, she's in, there's a bunch of people around her. Um, so here, so this woman obviously is brought back and she recalls some remarkable things about this experience. So one of them is that she could describe where each doctor and nurse was in the room after she died. And she even said which nurse jumped on her to start doing CPR. And she drew a diagram of the room and the people and all that kind of stuff. The second is she was able to recall specific feelings uh, or that she was having thoughts in the first place, that she was still able to have thoughts, you know, have some degree of consciousness. Prior to uh, their taking her to, so they knew, again, the hospital staff's like, hey, this is going to be a C-section. They call her husband, who's out of town on a business trip. They say, hey, you need to come in. This is something's going down. They go into the OR. So she's able to describe the clothes that he's wearing coming off of the plane. 
So she, there's obviously no way she would have known what he's got on in that moment. So she's, he's come, so she's able to say, like, after the fact, this is what he was wearing because she says she could see him come after they came off the plane at the airport. So here's one of the main points that I took away. Naturalists, um, people who really rely on humanism, are quick to point out that our feelings, emotions, thoughts, they're all essentially chemical processes, uh, reactions going on in our brain. Like all of our consciousness can be explained by biology, biological processes that are going on. But this example above really spoke to me that who we are, meaning the essence of our nature, our soul, like what we are, transcends our biology because this woman, she doesn't have blood flow to her brain. She's, again, flatline, no brain activity going on. But yet she's still able to have thoughts, see things, do things, just have, again, some degree of consciousness. And this was outside of what her brain was able to do. So, again, it spoke to me that really, like, humans the true essence of what we are is quite remarkable like there's much more to us than what you can see and like the sum of the parts is more more than the whole or what is it the whole is more than some of the parts like putting us together just the pieces doesn't really make a human like we're we're more than that we transcend that <clears throat> it reminded me of a quote from c.s lewis this is where your notes will pick up so there's a again from c.s lewis it is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses, to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship, or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. So it struck me that, again, um, the people we interact with, the conversations we have, like who we are as humans is more than just a body, blood, organs, flesh and bone. So a verse actually to support this concept that being a human is similar, that we're made in the image of God, that we're special is from Psalm 82.6. I said, this is David writing, you are gods and all of you are sons of the most high. Now it's gods with a lowercase. So he's not saying you are gods like actually God, but rather you're like God. <clears throat> it's important to note, Jesus actually quotes this exact verse in the New Testament, John 10, 34. It's in response to the Pharisees that are challenging him, picking up in verse uh, 33. We are not stoning you for any, of your, any good work, they replied, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. Jesus answered them, is it not written in your law, I have said you are gods? So he's quoting this, this passage here in Psalm. So the context, excuse me, the context again isn't that we're actually God, but rather we have similar capacities, you know, making judgments, for example. Uh, more, accurately, <clears throat> more accurately, God's chosen to give us similar capacity to himself. You know, we reflect that we're the image of God. So I want to talk about that. All right, jumping right in. The dichotomy. So this is as opposed to a trichotomy, and this is the essential nature of man. So dichotomy is that man is made of two parts, body and soul or spirit, and soul and spirit can be used interchangeably. 
So before we get into too many uh, details, it's important to keep in mind, Scripture does emphasize the overall unity of man. Genesis 2-7, God breathed into his nostrils, speaking of Adam, the breath of life, and man became a living being. So this is referring to Adam. It shows a person with body and soul living and acting together. 2 Corinthians, we are to cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit and make holiness perfect in the fear of God. So that's the dichotomy, this body, spirit, and soul, as opposed to trichotomy is the concept that man actually has three parts, body, soul, and spirit, that the spirit and soul are distinct. So although this idea of this philosophy of the trichotomy is well within Christian faith, um, I personally lean more towards a dichotomy, so I want to focus there uh, for a little bit more. To support this idea of a dichotomy, Scripture often uses soul and spirit interchangeably. John 12, 27, this is Jesus. Now is my soul troubled. And then later in the next chapter, with a similar context, he says troubled, he feels troubled, he was troubled in his spirit. So here we see this spirit and soul being used interchangeably. In Luke 1, 46-47, Mary says, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices, rejoices in God my Savior. So again, there's this interchangeable between spirit and soul. So while prior to sin, so in the Garden of Eden, when Adam is created, and, and then after redemption, so new heavens, new earth, when full redemption story has been uh, finished, we're perfectly unified. The Bible tells us that there is a distinction between body and soul. At death, our soul departs from our body. Here's an example. Rachel died in Genesis 35, 18. Her soul was departing, it's described. And in Luke 12, 20, God tells the rich fool, this night your soul is required of you. And in Matthew 10, 28, Jesus tells us not to fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but we should rather fear him who can destroy body and soul in hell. So although we're unified, there is a distinction between the two. That's the main part. The spirit is really the main part that sets us uniquely amongst animals. So out of all the creatures God made, man is the only one to be made in the image of God. The fact man is in the image of God means that man is like God and represents God. The Hebrew word here for image is basilem. I don't know how to exactly say that. Um, but it has the root to construct or cut out, like to form. And it's used, uh, for example, describing idols later in the Bible. So like people making idols, they're making it in the image of the idol. It's like not lit, it's, it's representing the God, the deity. Similarly, we're not God, but we're in the image of God. Like we're the representation of him. <clears throat> so it's in the sense, this word is in the sense of likeness. It's similar, but not identical to the thing it represents. It's difficult to define all of the ways that we're like God, but I've got a big chunk here on your notes, especially, uh, that there's a lot of points worth mentioning and really contemplating. So I've got them broken down by different aspects. So first is a moral aspect. Like, again, these are ways being made in the image of God makes us like God. There's moral aspects. First, we are morally accountable to God for our actions. Second, we have an inner sense of right and wrong, which sets us apart from animals. And thirdly, we can have behavior 
that's like holy and righteous, which reflects our unique likeness to God, where, of course, animals don't have that type of sense. Like they're more instinctual. Uh, they can have learned behavior, but this transcendent higher sense of like, what are you doing? Why are you doing it in a morality sense is unique to humans. Spiritual aspects that make us uh, like God. One, we not only have physical bodies, but also have immaterial spirits and therefore can act in ways that are significant in the immaterial spiritual world realm. So say, you know, uh, a prairie dog sounds the alarm helping his fellow prairie dogs. Yes, he's doing a good thing, but it's not having like spiritual ramifications. He's not, you know, uh, growing spiritual fruit, you know, in his life, of course. So that's, that's a big deal. I mean, that's unique to humans. All right, number two, we have a spiritual life that enables us to relate to God, to pray and worship him and to hear him speaking to us. So again, animals aren't um, being, like God's not teaching them, maturing them in their spiritual walk, for example. That's unique to humans. <clears throat> Third, we will not cease to exist, but will live forever. Like I was saying earlier, you know, our essence is not fully biological, but really we're outside of that. Like who we are is spiritual like God. Mental aspects. This is interesting. We, number one, we have an ability to reason, think logically, and learn in such a way that sets us apart from animals. So even this idea of like putting together complex thoughts, rationale, like logic, all of this is a reflection of God. <clears throat> you know, we often, I think too much, we put ourselves onto God. In reality, of course, the things that we, that we do that are like God, I mean, God has put them onto us, you know. He's the originator, we're the, we're the duplicates. <clears throat> but to um, think about this idea that God, so we talk about God has plans for your life. God um, was able to understand, here's what it's going to take to save us. You know, he knew, of course, he had foreknowledge about sin, and he knew that he was going to have to create uh, this plan of Christ being the sacrifice and that it would need to be perfectly orchestrated in such a way. And I think it's interesting to think like, you know, so when we make plans, and you know, God makes plans too. It's interesting to have that like, we have this similarity, this camaraderie, I suppose, uh, with God and this ability to think rationally, reason, I mean, really, it's, it's from God. Okay, number two, moving on. Our use of complex abstract language sets us apart, uh, also as image bearers. So animals, they communicate, and some, they may have, you know, different levels of communication, but they're not writing poetry. Uh, they're not talking about abstract thoughts like we are. <clears throat> we, uh, next point, we also have an awareness of the distant future. This reminds me of Ecclesiastes 3.11. God has put eternity into man's heart. So we're able to think about, you know, 10 years, 20 years, 100 years, 1,000 years. I mean, we can really have this idea to look out where animals, of course, aren't doing that. Lastly, not lastly, Almost lastly, <laughs> human creativity such as art, music, literature, ingenuity, and a sense of beauty are unique, of course, to humans. I was just listening to a podcast today, this idea of arguing for the existence of God from aesthetics, from beauty. Like this idea of recognizing beauty, creating something that's beautiful, like art or music, 
is very unique to humans. And it would be hard, I think, to ex fully explain this from a non-supernatural way, meaning take God out of it, atheism. Like, how would you fully explain when you hear a song that you like, the sense that it gives you, you know, the feelings that it arises, the emotions that it can cause, or, you know, some people are really into wine. You know, when you have fantastic wine and you have your palate and um, the process to even make that, all of this actually can argue towards the existence of a God. Um, that is beautiful, you know. Okay, lastly, now in the mental aspects, humans have a large degree in complexity of emotions, such as altruistic love, meaning love that has no reward for you. Uh, an easy example would, I think, you know, as a parent-child, like you love your children and do things for them, not expecting anything in return, knowing that, in fact, you would put yourself in harm's way to save them, you know, and... Um, you can do things, or for your spouse, that's another good one, <clears throat> that are really, so altruism is like love that is just strictly love, not because of what you're getting something out of it. All right, uh, so complexity of emotions, pride, joy, a sense of justice and forgiveness, mercy, grace. Right now, social justice is huge. Um, you know, racial justice is huge, understandably and rightfully so, but it's like, where do we as a society even get a sense of justice? Like, Why do we have a sense of what's right and wrong? Well, some people have explanations, but really, in my opinion, the simplest and most likely explanation is because we have a God who is just, who's instilled that in us. Moving on. Relational aspects. So marriage, it's unique. Uh, that's unique, unique to humans. And all the depth that follows marriage like families, biblical roles for husbands and wife. And marriage, in the end, it's a reflection of Jesus and the church. Ephesians 5, verse 31. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. This is Paul teaching. <clears throat> Second relational aspect. Just like God... He's given us authority over creation and even over angels. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 3, Do you not know that we are to judge angels? Angels. So this capacity, this authority is unique. Obviously, it's so for example, he's not telling Fido the dog that he should rule over and be good stewards you know, of the earth. Of course, it's given to man. And this is, uh, and we even have um, authority over angels eventually. All right, so going back to the dichotomy. Scripture is clear that we do have a soul. It's distinct from our physical bodies, uh, which this soul can not only function somewhat independently of our ordinary thought processes, but also when we die is able to go on consciously acting and relating to God apart from our physical bodies. So, I mean, that's, that's a really profound point, right? That the naturalist says... Everything you are is wrapped up in your chemicals and your proteins and your biological processes. Well, like Christianity stands apart from that because we believe, you know, when you go to heaven, of course you're apart from the body, you're dead, but you're still able to recognize people, have conversations, learn things, there's culture in heaven. So all of that 
must be outside of that. It has to be or it wouldn't work, right? So here's another example. Jesus on the cross tells the dying thief, today you will be with me in paradise. So this is the idea that like your consciousness goes on past your body. And so Jesus is telling him, look, you're going to be with me. Uh, even though, of course, he's on the cross. He's dying right next to him. When uh, the disciple Stephen, he's being stoned, he knew he would immediately pass into the presence of the Lord for he prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Paul in Philippians says, we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord, indicating confidence he would have fellowship with the Lord after death. So here's an interesting question. Where do souls come from? <laughs> I've, I laugh because, of course, Disney Pixar just had that movie Soul. I don't know if you guys saw it. Uh, it's like, where do souls come from? <laughs> uh, all right, so there's two, two ideas, two main thoughts. One is creationism, which is the view that God creates a new soul for each person and sends it into that person's body sometime between conception and birth. There's another one, traducianism, and I may have not said that right. On the other hand, holds that the soul, as well as the body of a child, are inherited actually from mom and dad. Both views have been defended by Christians and early church fathers. So Calvin actually favored creationism, while Luther was in favor of traducianism. Uh, I personally, you know, lean towards creationism. Here's some verses. David in Psalm 139 says, God knit me together in my mother's womb. So again, this idea that God creates your soul. Uh, Isaiah says, God gives breath to people on the earth and spirit to those who walk in it. Zechariah talks of God as the one who forms the spirit of man within him. Hebrews 12.9 speaks of God as the father of spirits. Uh, but again, both views fall well within uh, Christianity. The second part of tonight's talk is, is, is sin. So we've talked about our body, spirit, image of God. It's supposed to kind of give you... Uh, a background and like give us a starting point for then okay what then is the significance what's the consequence of sin how profound is it it's always good to start off with the definition this comes from uh, Wayne Grudem sin is any failure to conform to the moral law of God in act attitude or nature I think most modern believers would recognize that even if you don't overtly act out even attitudes and thoughts can be sinful we kind of take that for granted. We forget that this wasn't always the common interpretation, common understanding. So go way back to the ancient times with Jesus. So the Pharisees, for example, interpreted the law in quite a literal sense, you know, and they had uh, the law and then the Pharisees had additional laws to that law, you know, like they were charged with, okay, so here's the law, now, what does that exactly mean? So, for example, the Sabbath, not doing work on the Sabbath. What does that mean? Well, you know, you can't. So now, like modern day, for example, modern day Jews, conservative, you know, Hasidic Jews, for example, they can't use an elevator because that would be the elevators doing work. But of course, you know, they didn't talk, they didn't say you can't use the elevator in the original law. <laughs> but I use that just as an example to show like, You've got the law, but then you've got like all these interpretations and degrees and and really that's the man-made side of it. So when Jesus came, this is one of the things that was really turning things on their head. And we see this most explicitly in the Sermon on the Mount. So he comes with a dramatically different interpretation of the law and he speaks to the matters of the heart. So Matthew 5, 21 through two. 
You have heard it said that, excuse me, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. So again, I just was reflecting on this idea that it wasn't always the case that people really understood what sin was, that it doesn't need to be overt acts. And this is also one of the reasons when Jesus spoke and taught, it came with, it amazed people. It was with authority and um, it was revolutionary, really. So this is in Luke uh, 4.32, speaking of the people listening to him teach. Uh, they were amazed at his teaching because his words had authority. Let's talk about the fundamentals of sin. First, everyone has sinned. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Psalm 14.3, they have all gone astray. They are all like corrupt. There is none that does good, no, not one. Psalm 143.2, no man living is righteous. 1 Kings 8.46, there is no man who does not sin. So that's all pretty clear, I think. <laughs> In the Romans passage for all have sinned, the, the Greek word there is hamertano, which is used in ancient times referring to when an archer misses the mark or bullseye. So sin is missing God's mark, which of course is perfection and holiness. His perfection is really outside of our full understanding, partly because sin is so intricately connected with all aspects of our lives. Like we've never known life and relationships and work without sin. And this, just real short side note, you know, we just, I mentioned heaven earlier. I think this is one of the biggest, like, we can think about heaven and we can study it and we should and we absolutely should be talking about it and think about it. But, like, we're never really going to completely understand until we get there. Because heaven, well, one of the first things is we're in God's presence is without sin. Like, we don't understand what it's like to have any type of conversation or relationship that isn't tainted by sin. And I think that's, you know, a, a profound thing that, you know, the people we meet, the things we do, like, again, the culture, uh, places we travel, all without sin. <laughs> that's going to be kind of cool. All right. So Isaiah 6.3, uh, this is just pointing out God's holiness. <clears throat> and one called to another and said, this is, uh, okay, this is an Isaiah. Isaiah is seeing a vision and he's describing what the angels are saying. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. So this holy, 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 this is a common way in ancient literature to provide emphasis. We have something similar now. So for example, if you, somebody goes on a date, maybe it's their, I don't know, girlfriend, gone on a couple dates, and afterwards you're asking them, hey, did you, did you kiss? And they say, oh yeah, we did. And then you're like, well, did you kiss or did you kiss, kiss? You see, like, you say it twice, it just changes the meaning. So that's, so that use that as a common analogy, because really, so the angels are saying, look, God is holy, holy, holy. Like, he's, they're saying it three times to really provide this uh, highest degree of emphasis of God's holiness. <clears throat> okay, second fundamental of sin. So first fundamental is everyone sins. Second fundamental, sin separates us from God both bodily and spiritually. This is death. Genesis 2:17. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in that day you eat it, eat of it, you shall surely die. 
Because of sin, we lack spiritual good before God. Because of sin, we are unable to do good before God. This reminded me of a, a, a verse in Romans 8. Romans 8, 6. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. That's sin. But to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. Here wages is like what is owed, what's the compensation, what's the payment of sin and its death. The Bible uses a variety of analogies to describe sin. The one that I find most helpful and easy to grasp is that sin incurs a debt to God. This is exemplified in the Lord's Prayer, Matthew 5.12, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Number three, fundamental of sin. Sin must be punished. God is just. He cannot allow sin to go unaddressed, unaccounted for, just left alone. How could he be truly good and just if he were to just let people get off scot-free? It wouldn't make sense. And that, you know, okay, if you're in conversation, that's a point that comes to mind when people are talking about the problem of evil. Serious um, atrocities. Uh, genocide, rape, I mean, just terrible stuff that happens in this world. It's like, how does a good God allow something like that? And now one of my responses is, well, God is going to punish that. I mean, he's, there's hell. He will, he's not going to be mocked. He's he's going Everybody's going to face judgment. Now, it's kind of a difficult argument because not everybody believes in God in the first place or heaven and hell in the first place, right? So it's got to be kind of in the right context. But I think that, again, we should be quick to recognize. When people like throw that in our face or something, you should say, you're right. That is wrong. And those people are going to be punished for it. You know, when we talk about hell. We haven't, we're, not, you know, we're not doing a theology of hell tonight. But, I mean, it's a serious thing, right? Spending eternal, um, you know, your soul in torment, your conscious. I mean, it's a difficult thing, right? So that, that you know, I, again, I think it's a, a, a response. We should be quick to talk about that. God is just. He's going to punish sin. Galatians uh, 6, 7. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For, whoever, so for whatever one sows, that he will also reap. Romans 2, 6 through 10. He will render to each one according to his works. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. So the payment for our sin, uh, to reconcile us, to bring us in one minute back to God, requires the shedding of blood. Leviticus 17, 11, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Hebrews 9.22 Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. <clears throat> that tees us up to talk about atonement. And Colin Kerr is going to go over uh, atonement theories. Like how does Christ work on the cross? Pay the penalty, pay the wages, bring us back to God reconcile that relationship that's broken, that death uh, that's caused. Application time. Number one, we need a Savior. We need to remind ourselves that our salvation cannot come from ourselves. 
because of sin, something outside of us, something transcendent has to provide the solution. R.C. Sproul, reminded me, R.C. Sproul's got a book, it's a short one, called um, Saved from What? And he, he wrote this book, it's real short, in response to you know, people in evangelism, maybe uh, back in the day would come up and be like, you know, are you saved? I know things like, and and so it's kind of like, well, what do you mean? What do you mean, saved? Like saved from what? And it's this idea that again, that we're sinners, that there's a payment to be paid. Everybody has this debt. <clears throat> it's important to remind us ourselves of that. That we need Christ. We need that atonement. Like uh, again, we need. We're, we're sinners. Even Paul says of himself that he's the chief of sinners. I mean, he wrote a third of the New Testament. He did some pretty amazing things, and he had serious sin in his life as well. So if Paul is saying, look, I'm the chief of sinners, I think that we can kind of take a note from that. It provides us humility, too. That, that's something that I would learned, and I'm still learning, but you know, learned a number of years ago, is that you know, everybody has sin in our lives. God has people on their own paths. It provides humility, in my opinion. When you have a recognition of what God's done in your life, guess what? you're real quick to forgive other people, to be patient, to show kindness, <laughs> right? Because you recognize what he's done to you and that, you know, it's, it would be hypocritical or foolish to not pass that on, show other people the grace that we've been given. Number two application. Our interactions, and I had mentioned this kind of earlier, our interactions uh, with people should reflect that they're not mere immortals. This mentality changes how we talk to people, how we treat them, what we talk about. This has to reflect or should reflect that we're made in the image of God. Every person will spend forever in paradise or torment. So the seriousness of it, um, you know, it changes. You know, the Bible talks about crass talk and or making vows before God, using his name in vain, things like that. Uh, again, when we have a recognition that this, these people that we're talking to, that we're around, our coworkers, our friends, our families, it, it's a sobering thought. That's the reality. And so it changes the things that you want to talk about. You know, you want to talk about maybe more serious uh, things. <clears throat> it's always good to have three points of application. So I've only got two. All right. So now it's your turn. I want to hear from you guys. Uh, help me with a uh, third point of application. I want to hear stuff you like, stuff you didn't like. I'm all ears.